Chapter Thirty Seven of Eben Holden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Eben Holden: A Tale of the North Country by Irving Bachelor. Chapter Thirty Seven. As soon as Lincoln was elected, the attitude of the South showed clearly that the irrepressible conflict of Mr. Seward's naming had only just begun. The Herald gave columns every day to the news of the coming revolution, as it was pleased to call it. There was loud talk of war at and after the great Pine Street meeting of December 15th. South Carolina seceded five days later, and then we knew what was coming, albeit we saw only the dim shadow of that mighty struggle that was to shake the earth for nearly five years. The printer grew highly irritable those days, and spoke of Buchanan and Davis and Toombs in language so violent it could never have been confined in type. But while a bitter foe, none was more generous than he, and when the war was over, his money went to bail the very man he had most roundly damned. I remember that one day, when he was sunk deep in composition, a negro came and began with grand airs to make a request as delegate from his campaign club. The printer sat still, his eyes close to the paper, his pen flying at high speed. The colored orator went on lifting his voice in a set petition. Mr. Greeley bent to his work as the man waxed eloquent. A nervous movement now and then betrayed the printer's irritation. He looked up shortly, his face kindling with anger. "'Help! For God's sake!' he shrilled impatiently, his hands flying in the air. The printer seemed to be gasping for breath. "'Go and stick your head out of the window and get through!' he shouted hotly to the man. He turned to his writing, a thing dearer to him than a new bone to a hungry dog. "'Then you may come and tell me what you want.' he added in a milder tone. Those were days when men said what they meant, and their meaning had more fight in it than was really polite or necessary. Fight was in the air, and before I knew it there was a wild, devastating spirit in my own bosom, insomuch that I made haste to join a local regiment. It grew apace, but not until I saw the first troops on their way to the war was I fully determined to go and give battle with my regiment. The town was afire with patriotism. Sumter had fallen. Lincoln had issued his first call. The sound of the fife and drum rang in the streets. Men gave up work to talk and listen, or go into the sterner business of war. Then, one night in April, a regiment came out of New England on its way to the front, it lodged at the Astor House to leave at nine in the morning. Long before that hour, the building was flanked and fronted with tens of thousands, crowding Broadway for three blocks, stuffing the wide mouth of Park Row, and braced into Vesey and Barday streets. My editor assigned me to this interesting event. I stood in the crowd that morning and saw what was really the beginning of the war in New York. There was no babble of voices, no impatient call, no sound of idle jeering, such as one is apt to hear in a waiting crowd. It stood silent, 
each man busy with the rising current of his own emotions, solemnified by the faces all around him. The soldiers filed out upon the pavement, the police having kept away clear for them. Still there was silence in the crowd, save that near me I could hear a man sobbing. A trumpeter lifted his bugle and sounded a bar of the reveille. The clear notes clove the silent air, flooding every street about us with their silver sound. Suddenly the band began playing. The tune was Yankee Doodle. A wild, dismal, tremulous cry came out of a throat near me. It grew and spread to a mighty roar, and then such a shout went up to heaven as I had never heard, and as I know full well I shall never hear again. It was like the riving of thunderbolts above the roar of floods, elemental, prophetic, threatening, ungovernable. It did seem to me that the holy wrath of God Almighty was in that cry of the people. It was a signal. It declared that they were ready to give all that a man may give for that he loves, his life and things far dearer to him than his life. After that, they and their sons begged for a chance to throw themselves into the hideous ruin of war. I walked slowly back to the office and wrote my article. When the printer came in at twelve, I went to his room before he had had time to begin work. "'Mr. Greeley,' I said, "'here is my resignation. I am going to the war.' His habitual smile gave way to a sober look as he turned to me, his big white coat on his arm. He pursed his lips and blew thoughtfully. Then he threw his coat in a chair and wiped his eyes with his handkerchief. "'Well, God bless you, my boy,' he said. "'I wish I could go, too.'" End of chapter 37 Recording by Roger Moline